Good morning. Well, this morning's break between the, uh, David's presentation and this message is good practice because next week we'll be going uh, straight from the worship time to the teaching with uh, a brief break in between. Um, last week in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, we moved from the bad news to the good news, from the condemnation of all mankind to the gift of justification that comes only through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. I agree with Martin Luther who said that that passage, Romans 3, 21 to 26, is the, is the center of this epistle. And in his words, it's also the center of the whole Bible. But Paul isn't finished uh, explaining how righteousness and the gift of God's righteousness work. There's much more to come, and this passage is also a loaded passage with a whole lot uh, that we need to pay attention to. The whole letter, the epistle to the Romans, is about how God's own righteousness becomes imputed to and imparted to men. Uh, Paul is going to continue through chapter 5 to explain how we become justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God. That's imputed righteousness. Then in chapter 6, he'll begin talking about sanctification, about imparted righteousness, or how God's righteousness not only becomes ours by declaration, but it becomes ours in practice. In the passage we're examining today, chapter 3, verse 27 through 4, verse 8, Paul is still solidly in the realm of how men become justified or declared righteous in the eyes of God. Let me see if I can fire that up. Yes. Uh, and we're going to look at a couple of the... I'm going to break this down the way it's shown up here. The, the focus of the passage today is really about the foolishness of boasting. It's about how ridiculous really it is for us to boast in our works as if those works had anything to do with how we are justified in the eyes of God. And I see two pieces here, or sections. First in 3.27 to 31, Paul's point is that boasting is excluded because works of the law, that is of the law of Moses, do not justify us in the eyes of God. Then in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, I believe Paul broadens the scope of that assertion, declaring that boasting is excluded because no works of any kind justify us in God's eyes. Now there's a positive assertion that is also woven throughout this passage, and that is that God justifies us on only one basis, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly where Paul ended the previous passage. If you look in 3.26, he concluded that section by saying, uh, right at the end of that verse, that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's how justification occurs. All right, first, boasting is excluded because works of the law do not justify. Starting in verse 27, Paul says, Where then is boasting? 
It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Boasting uh, was a big problem in the early church. And it's still a big problem in the church. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. As we saw in the earlier passages in this epistle, Paul had already addressed head-on the hypocritical self-righteousness, the boasting, if you will, of the Judaizers. At the heart of it, the Judaizers inside the church were not that different than the Pharisees outside the church whom Jesus had so scathingly uh, indicted during his three-year ministry. These Judaizers, they were Jewish believers or professing believers who insisted that in order for Gentiles to truly be righteous in the eyes of God, they had to still be keepers of the law of Moses. They relentlessly hounded the early church, and Paul had a lot to say that was directed toward them in his epistles. They were proud of what they considered to be their superior righteousness and their superior performance as Christians compared with those Gentile believers who weren't keeping the law of Moses. Paul appropriately saw himself not as a superior Christian, even though he had all the credentials you could ask for as a Jew. Instead, in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, he tells Timothy that he is the foremost of sinners. So Paul had no tolerance for graceless arrogance and self-righteousness. Paul's wording throughout this section is very decisive. He doesn't leave room for misinterpretation. He begins with the question, where then is boasting? And he answers it with a Greek word that's one word, excluded. There is no place for boasting. There is no case that a man can make that he has cause to boast before God. None. Paul makes that statement and then he poses a question in order to zero in on a very important point. He says, by what kind of law is boasting excluded? By a law of works? And he says, no, by a law of faith. Now the question, what kind or what sort of law excludes boasting, would have raised a lot of eyebrows among the Jews in Paul's audience. Uh, the Jews recognized only one kind of law that had anything to do with God, and that was the law of Moses. But Paul presents in contrast here two kinds or sorts of law, a law of faith and a law of works. He's doing an interesting thing here, I think, with the word law. <laughs> and I believe in the process he's beginning to shift the focus from this perceived contrast between those who had, the law, had and kept the law of Moses and those who didn't, on the one hand, versus the very real distinction between a principle of life and a way of righteousness based on faith versus one based on works. A law of works and a law of faith are radically different approaches. And Paul will go on to explain that they are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. A right relationship with God cannot possibly be based on both faith and works. Not only that, 
It cannot be based on works. Only one of these two approaches is legitimate based on God's way of reckoning. A law under which man's compliance with the rules stated in that law determines whether he's succeeding in keeping that law is a law that rewards and encourages boasting, right? If if the way we know that we're righteous is by keeping rules, then when we're keeping the rules, don't we have cause to pat ourselves on the back? But a law of faith is a radically different matter, especially if we understand what Paul has to say about how that law operates. The law of faith Paul is talking about consists of men trusting God to do good works through them, not God trusting men to do those same works. This will become clearer as we proceed through this uh, passage. In verse 28, Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now the phrase apart from works of the law has been a subject of much debate, especially recently. As if it's a complex or subtle phrase. I believe it is not. I believe it means exactly what it says. Justification involves no element of doing works of the law of Moses. You can do the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the laws and statutes and ordinances contained in the first five books of the Bible as men measure doing, and you can do them 24 by 7 for the rest of your life, and it will not contribute anything toward making God see you as righteous. You will not have done anything that impresses God. If that makes you squirm in your seats a little bit, then you're at least starting to get what Paul is saying. In verse 29, Paul points out by means of a question that if justification were by works of the law, then God would be God only of those who had the law, notably the Jews. But instead, Paul says God is the God of the Gentiles also. In the grand scheme of God's dealings with Israel, What Paul is saying here ends up being something of an additional indictment against Israel. Because Israel's calling from God, to go all the way back to Exodus 19, was to be a kingdom of priests. They weren't called to hoard the knowledge of God unto themselves, even to hoard the law unto themselves. They were called to draw in the Gentiles so that all the nations would have the knowledge of God. That was their missionary calling, their priestly calling. In this verse, it's as if Paul is saying, Israel, you didn't fulfill your priestly mission to draw the Gentiles in, but God did. In verse 30, Paul amplifies this assertion that God is the God of both Jews and Gentiles, and he ties that assertion to the issue of justification. The God who justifies the circumcised, that is, the Jews, by faith, is the same God who justifies the uncircumcised Gentiles through faith. Now Paul's wording again is interesting. He says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? 
Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. God is one. Now that declaration, God is one, again, that sets off a light in the, in, in the minds of the Jewish readers and hearers. The Shema, one of the most quoted passages in the Old Testament among Jews to this day. Deuteronomy 6, starting at verse 4, says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The declaration that God is one speaks of His uniqueness, that there is only one true God and His name is Yahweh. There is no other. But Paul carries the thought further. The one true God doesn't have two ways of justifying men. He has one way. He doesn't justify the Jews by one means and the Gentiles by another. As Paul has already stated clearly, God makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile when it comes either to their failure to measure up to His holiness or to their justification. And all men who are justified in the eyes of God are justified on the same basis. Faith apart from works of the law. In verse 31, Paul raises the question to which he knows his Jewish readers will pounce based on what he just said. He knows they're thinking, so Paul, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying that the law of Moses doesn't matter. You're saying it's of no consequence. And that's a problem. Paul's first response to the question, do we then nullify the law, is the same as his response to many of the other misguided questions that he raises and will raise throughout this book so that he can shoot them down. May it never be. Perish the thought. And then he says, on the contrary, we establish the law. Now this is huge. If you don't get what Paul is saying right here, then you miss the point of all that he's saying to explain how faith operates, faith in Jesus Christ operates in reference to the law of Moses. Faith in Jesus does not nullify the law of Moses. It establishes it. It fulfills it. It doesn't tear down the law. It builds it up and makes it to stand. Now how can that be? How can it be that if righteousness comes to us by faith apart from works of the law, that that same faith in Jesus Christ also establishes the law? How can it be apart from the law and in keeping with the law at the same time? You see the tension here? Now another angle on this question might be, how can a righteousness that comes to us without demanding that we practice the commandments of the law possibly establish our compliance with that same law? In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke very forcefully about the fact that He came to fulfill the law, not to nullify it. He said, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I came, I, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth shall pass away, 
not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is accomplished, until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul is saying exactly the same thing. Faith in Jesus Christ does not nullify the law of Moses. It establishes it. In Romans 9 and 10, Paul revisits this same question and expands on his answer. And what he says there helps clarify what he's getting at here. So I want to look briefly at part of that section of the book. Romans 9.30 through 10.4. Paul says in 9.30, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. Even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. So they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And His name was Jesus. Verse uh, Chapter 10, verse 1. Paul makes a very heartfelt statement. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for Israel, is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. But look at this. But not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The contrast there in 10.3 is critically important. God's righteousness versus their own righteousness. That is the issue. The Jews sought to establish a righteousness of their own. And the word establish in 10.3 is the exact same word Paul uses in 3.31 when he says that rather than nullifying the law through faith, we establish it. Paul says in Romans 7.12 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law reflects the holy, righteous character of God and it sets before men the standard of righteousness by which all men will be measured by God. Faith doesn't nullify the law because it doesn't in any way negate that standard. Instead, faith establishes and fulfills that standard of righteousness. It doesn't just confirm the standard and say, okay, in faith I agree with that standard. Faith accomplishes our compliance with that standard. Faith in Jesus Christ establishes the law not in theory, but in practice in the hearts and actions of men. Okay, so the Jews failed to establish a righteousness of their own. That effort was doomed from the start based on all that Paul said in the first few chapters of this book. But the Gentile believers who did not pursue a works-based righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness 
which is by faith. And whose righteousness is that? It's God's. What does it mean in 10.4 that Christ is the end of righteousness to everyone, the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes? Again, it means what it says. Jesus is the end point. He is the final and ultimate finishing out of the perfect righteousness demanded by the law of Moses. For whom is faith the end of the law? Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. We, you and I, do not complete the requirement of the law. He does. There's only one righteous, and please hear me when I say this, there is only one law keeper. Once you get that, what Paul's saying here actually becomes pretty clear and pretty simple. In chapter 4, Paul continues with his argument that boasting is excluded by a law of faith. And he broadens that statement going to, 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 to expand the idea that works of the law do not justify. He actually goes beyond that to say that no works justify. His central point in 4, 1 through 8 is, again, it's not just works of the law of Moses that are excluded when it comes to our justification. It's works of any kind. The way Paul presents this this uh, proposition is, is, I think, very clever. He keys on the word reckoned from the Greek translation of Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he takes that word and he runs with it. That word, the Greek word, the verb is legizomai, but it occurs five times in these eight verses. And it occurs five more times in the remaining verses of chapter 4. So I think it's safe to say that that word kind of ties Paul's argument together in this chapter. The word reckon, what does that mean? Well, it shows up in some translations as credited or counted. The idea behind the way the word is being used here is it's like an accounting term. It's to credit something to a person's account. And the something being credited here is righteousness. Paul's talking about God's righteousness being credited to the account of a person. Verses 1 through 8 lay out God's accounting process. How God reckons. Explains how it doesn't work and how it does work. In verses 1 through 3 and in verses 6 through 8, Paul gives two examples, two real life examples of Old Testament saints whose faith was counted to them, credited to them as righteousness. Abraham and David. And between those two examples in verses 4 and 5, Paul gets starkly clear about how God's accounting process does and doesn't work. First in verses 1 through 3, the example of Abraham. Now often in his epistles, Paul refers to Abraham as the template for the faith of every believer. Abraham is our forefather and our forerunner when it comes to being justified through faith. Here in Romans 4 as well as in Galatians 3, the connection of every believer with Abraham is very much in focus. 
In 4.1, Paul begins by asking, in essence, how this whole faith versus works of the law thing played out for Abraham. What was it that Abraham found in regard to all of this? It's ex exceedingly important to Paul's argument that Abraham lived before the law of Moses. Moses and the law came into play well over 500 years after Abraham was out of the picture. In fact, if we use possession of the law of Moses as that which distinguishes Jews from Gentiles, then Abraham was a Gentile. By turning the reader's attention to Abraham, Paul is very intentionally moving beyond the issue of Mosaic law-keeping, and he's addressing the question of works on a broader basis. And by the way, he's going to continue to drive home the fact that this issue transcends the law of Moses through the rest of chapter 4, as we'll see next time. In verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. If there's any justification obtained by doing good works, it isn't the justification in the eyes of God. One might be declared righteous in the eyes of men based on doing works that men perceive to be good. But God is not impressed. Paul already explained in no uncertain terms that there is none among men who is righteous or who does good as God measures righteousness and goodness. Not even one. In chapter 4, verse 3, Paul cites Genesis 15.6. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, he's going to refer to that exact same verse two more times in chapter 4. So I think it should go without saying that we need to know the context of that verse. And this is a good spot to deal briefly with a point of concern that comes up a lot when Christians are trying to sort out how salvation worked for Old Testament believers. That's a legitimate question. My assertion here is that we're really talking about two separate questions. What is the necessary content of faith is a different question than what, who is the necessary object of faith. Content versus object. Let me talk first about the necessary content of the believer's faith. Old Testament believers didn't have enough of God's revelation, at least before the prophecies were developed, to know and understand all that would later become known about Jesus, about who He is and what He would accomplish. So what exactly was it that they had to believe in order to be saved? Have you ever wondered that? Weren't they just required to believe certain promises that God had made to them? Like Abraham believing that God would give him a son in his old age, and then that he would give him that son through Sarah in her old age? Or David believing that God would honor his promises to give him an everlasting kingdom? Or even that God would graciously forgive his grievous sin? Let's consider the content of the faith of Abraham. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham three essential things in the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, and blessing. He promised to give the land of Canaan to Abraham and to his descendants. He promised to give Abraham descendants, a seed. And he promised a threefold blessing. To bless Abraham and to make his name great. To bless those who blessed Abraham and curse those who cursed him. And finally, God promised that through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. 
But when we studied the covenants earlier this year, we saw that all of the key promises of the Abrahamic covenant find their perfect fulfillment in Christ. In Genesis 15, God restated the promise of the seed and told Abraham that that seed would come from his own body, from Abraham's own body, not from his servant. And then God told Abraham to look toward the heavens. And he said, if you can count the stars up there, then you'll know how many descendants you'll have. And in the very next verse, Genesis 15:6, it says, then he, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. In Galatians 3, Paul explains that ultimately the seed that God promised Abraham is Jesus Christ. The line of promise that started with Isaac found its culmination in Christ. The same is true of God's promise to David to give him a seed and to establish the kingdom of that seed as an everlasting kingdom. Fulfillment of those promises is Jesus Christ. So stick with me for a minute. In John 8, Jesus said to the Jews, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And the Jews immediately responded, You're not yet 50 years old, and yet you say you've seen Abraham? He lived a very long time ago. To which Jesus then replied, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, before Abraham was, I am. Of course, the Jews picked up stones to throw at him because they knew what he was getting at. Now, I'm not sure how all that plays out or when it was that Abraham rejoiced to see the coming of Jesus' day. But I'd say that these statements by Jesus tell us who the object of Abraham's faith was. All of God's covenant promises to his people are fulfilled in Christ. All of them. I could go into many other passages and promises that that makes this exact same point. Sacrifices, the priesthood, even the tabernacle itself all point to Christ and to His completed work at the cross. So, think of it this way. You can take this or leave it. This is how I understand it. If the saints in the Old Testament were justified in the eyes of God by believing God's promises, all of which have their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, then isn't it safe to say that the object of their faith was Jesus Christ, even if they didn't fully understand that? What's important is that God has known in every age who it is that fulfills His promises. He has known in every age who is the true object of the faith by which He declares men to be justified. And every time a person came to trust in God's Christ-centered promises, God credited His own righteousness his own righteousness to that man, to that person. I believe that's how it worked before the cross and that's how it works after the cross. All of the saints of God have placed their trust ultimately in the same object. You and I just get the added blessing of having all the content concerning that wonderful object. Now, in verses 4 and 5, uh, Paul makes two parallel statements. And I said earlier that Paul was talking here about how righteousness gets credited to a person's account by God. In these two statements, in 4 and 5, he, he uh, presents two ways that righteousness might, in theory, 
become credited to a person's account. The first is as a wage, as that which a person has earned by his actions. The second, in verse 5, is as a gift, without regard to what the person has earned. Now, the first scenario in verse 4 doesn't actually apply when it comes to how men become righteous in God's eyes. It's theoretical only because Paul has already made it emphatically clear that men will never have a righteousness credited to them by God based on what they have done, based on their own merit. Men deserve only condemnation. Why do you know Romans 6.23? That tells us about our wages. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Alright, so... The first option is wages, what you earn. You're not going to get there that way. The second scenario, which Paul presents in verse 5, explains how men actually come to be justified, declared righteous in the eyes of God. And Paul's wording here is is a shocker to the mindset of people who like to pat themselves on the back. A lot of Christians still have trouble taking these words at face value. But that's the only way to take them. Paul says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned, credited, counted to him as righteousness. If you take one person who works very hard at being righteous and you put him up against an admittedly ungodly person who does not work at all, but instead believes in him who justifies the ungodly. It's the second man who will be declared righteous by God. The first one will not. The second man receives the gift of God's own righteousness. Now, if we, if you can't look at that crystal clear proposition and take it at face value, then I don't think you get what Paul is talking about here. In verses 6 to 8, Paul gets to the second example, David. And he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. He keeps saying that, apart from works. (laughs) And then he quotes from Psalm 32, where David says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. The word at the end of verse 6 for take into account is the same word, reckon. David came to understand that the man who is truly blessed is the one to whom God reckons or credits righteousness apart from works. And here's the interesting part. That man's sin is not credited or reckoned to the account of the man who sinned. That man's sin is reckoned to the account of Jesus Christ and paid for by him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin. That we might become the righteousness and, and to be sin on our behalf. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. (laughs) The righteousness of God. 
Note that in verse 6, Paul doesn't say God reckons righteousness apart from works of the law. He simply says, apart from works. He's talking about works in the broadest sense. Now I want to recap the key point of this passage just to make sure we're clear on all this. The question is, how does the righteous requirement of the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments and all the other ordinances, get fulfilled for us who believe in Jesus Christ? The answer is, that requirement gets fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Why is it so hard for us to embrace that statement? Why is it that as soon as anyone makes a statement like that, we as Christians immediately start thinking of the yeah buts? Why is it that even Peter and Barnabas were so willing to add law back to grace that according to Paul's words in Galatians 2, 13, and 14, they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Why? It's because we like boasting. No, we love boasting. We love believing that we have something to offer in the first place. But more to the heart of the matter, we love believing that there's something about us that sets us above other people even above other Christians. God says boasting is excluded. He dismisses it as a lie because it is a denial of the reality that Jesus is the only one who meets the righteous requirement of God. When men boast in their own pathetic imitation of righteousness, it's a slap in God's face. And when a believer turns back to law-keeping and declares it to be righteousness. He is trampling underfoot the Son of God, regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified, and is insulting the Spirit of grace. The Spirit of grace. My brother Chuck Giannotti, whom I just met on Wednesday morning, boiled this down to a couple of simple questions. Do you feel righteous today? If so, on what basis? Your answer to that second question reveals everything about whether you actually believe what Paul is saying here. When I was a baby Christian in my first year of college, I went with a friend one weekend to visit Harding College up in Searcy, Arkansas. It's a Church of Christ college. My friend and I stayed on campus that weekend with a couple of young guys who were studying at that college for the ministry. The first morning we were there, we were sitting in this beautiful courtyard with these two students uh, in a park on the campus. It was an amazingly beautiful day. The weather was terrific. And we were just enjoying that morning when one of the guys out of the blue said, isn't it great on a day like this to know that your life is pleasing to God. Now, I sat there and immediately felt uncomfortable with that question. And it took me a minute to think of why. And then I just said to him, wow, the only reason I ever feel like I'm pleasing to God is because I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, I am a miserable wretch. And this guy pounced on me like white on rice. 
And he started grilling me with questions. And then he told me, in effect, that my gospel was not the gospel. And that I was not saved. Now that was a very important threshold in my life as a believer because it drove me back with great intensity to the Word of God. As I weighed that other guy's approach to pleasing God with what I believed I had seen in the Bible. The passage we're considering today, along with Galatians 2 and 3 and actually a multitude of other passages, in both Testaments have long since convinced me that the disparity I detected between that guy's approach and the one I knew from God's Word to be true goes right to the heart of the Christian faith and the believer's walk with God. Whose righteousness are we talking about? That is the question. And some of you may be thinking at this point, won't we as Christians be rewarded at the Bema Judgment Seat of Christ for the good deeds we've done? during our time spent as believers here on earth? The answer is yes. But that's the wrong question. The the real question is, how do those works come about in us and through us? Do we have anything to do with them? No. Paul said in Galatians 2, 19 and 20, For through the law I died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. And in the very next verse, in verse 21, He says, I do not nullify the Spirit of grace. Excuse me, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if... Righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Do you want to negate the the death of Jesus Christ? Then put your faith in your own works. We as Christians love to think that Jesus died to make us righteous. But Jesus died to clothe us in His righteousness and to put His righteousness to work in us and through us. It really is that simple. How could Jesus say in Matthew 11, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Was it because He's the one doing all the heavy lifting? No. It's because He's the one doing all the lifting. Period. Beloved, in the end, you will willingly and joyfully take the crown of righteousness that God will give to you and you will cast it at the feet of Jesus Christ. Because the only righteousness that will ever be manifested in you is His. Your life, as my brother Chuck said, is not about storing up grace points for yourself. Because you're performing so much better than other Christians. Do you think that's why God saved us so we could have that kind of competition among each other? To see who could come out on top? That's so self-serving. Your life is about storing up glory for your Master and your Savior. Because He's the only one who's going to get it. He's the only one righteous. The way you come to do the things that God intends and commands for you to do is by believing the One who actually does them in you and through you. Knowing that, 
And living based on that knowledge is the death of legalism and self-righteousness. And that, my friends, is very good riddance. And at the same time, knowing whose righteousness it is that is at work in you is the heart of the sanctified life that is pleasing to God. If you're thinking at this point that all of this doesn't tell me how sanctification works, how I can get better at letting Jesus work through me, you're right, it doesn't. (laughs) Paul will get to the matter of sanctification later, so stay tuned. But what we've seen today in this passage is an indispensable foundation for all that Paul is going to say about sanctification. You must understand and embrace this passage in order to move forward as a child of God and to be useful for His eternal purposes. Our most fundamental calling is faith. Trust in Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of faith. In order to be vessels of honor in God's hands, we must first and always believe in Him, abide in Him, rest in Him. Then we'll be joyfully useful to God for His purposes. I'll close with a prayer by the writer of Hebrews, found in Hebrews 13, 20, and 21. Bow with me as I read this prayer and think about these words. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.